Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, a series in which we take a deep dive into the Dungeon Master's guides written for the previous editions of our favorite game. We aim to discuss what worked, what didn't work, what got pulled into the future editions, and what fell off of Santa's sleigh. Tonight, this is Day 10, and we are talking about the Dungeon Master's Guide 2 for the 4th edition of D&D. So, so I was looking over the book as I was getting ready for this episode, which I usually don't do, but, you know, exceptions. That's funny. I did the same thing. Uh, and, and I was you know, looking at some of the advice in here and realizing that this is talking about doing exactly the things that people say D&D can't do or doesn't do. Um, especially 4th edition. Especially 4th edition, but in online conversation, there's so much sort of uh, absolutist rhetoric around D&D doesn't do that. Um, actually, here's a bunch of official text where they do exactly that. Um, <laughs> and and what, it, what it means to me is that D&D is a game that is actively conscious of itself as a living document in a way that I think most other games don't come out and say. Uh, they might like think it sort of behind closed doors. In D&D, it is front and center in the text. Even in 4E, one of the most legalistic of D&D editions. And one of the most maligned for and accused of having no role-playing opportunities. Oh, f- for sure. For but sure. we'll get to that. <laughs> So uh, my initial thoughts of this uh, are, and uh, in going through just the first three chapters of this in in the first three or four in great detail, what you learn is there is a lot that is in this book that got moved right over to fifth edition and that fourth edition does not get credit for. That's super fair. And putting it in the DMG2 is part of the cause there, right? Sure, uh, I'll, I'll I'll concede that point. I mean, I'll concede that point. The, the third ed DMG two doesn't get doesn't give sufficient credit to all of third ed for what it brings to the table. Sure, as we said, you know, a couple of episodes ago. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yep. I mean, I agree with you. Um, I'm going to be interested to see all the places where that proves true. This is this is a book that absolutely set us on fire when it came out. We loved it instantly, um, and I, I this may be my first actual cover to cover read of it as we you and I go through it because that's not how I read rule books typically. Uh, but it's what I love about this kind of um, breakdown, the kind that are also right for tribality. It does make me go page by page and read the whole thing. Yeah, and and you know what I learned today? Well, or not learned, relearned, re-realized. This is such an easy read. I mean, I read eighty-eight pages in like two hours. I mean, like cover to cover, every word. You know, like I read half the book today, just on a. You know, I was like, oh, I should probably start reviewing that for the. You know, I and I I was going to flip through, and then I turned and like on the very first page, I just started reading, and I just kept going. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean. Man, here I am on page five, the sidebar written by James Wyatt, and there's he's discussing one of the things that I think is 
like most culturally up for grabs in the whole D and D space. Uh, he's talking about DM saying no to the addition of new supplements and new, especially player facing content. You know, he says, um, if a player brings a new option to your table that doesn't fit in your game, it's okay to tell the player to hold on to that that idea until this campaign wraps up, and you or someone else in your group start something new. Like two seconds in the the big five e Facebook group, and you will see a dozen arguments about can DMs say no? Is it okay for DMs to, to say no? When is it okay for DMs to say no? Look, the the esteemed Matt Colville just put out a video like four days ago about saying no and what are the good reasons to say no. I mean, and, and, and the reason I bring that up is because you're absolutely right. This is a conversation that we keep having over and over and over again. And he even points out, you know, you might get pushback if there's something in the core book and you say, look, this doesn't fit my setting. You can't do it. And the player's going to say, but it's in the core book. I mean, that's one of the scenes from um, The Gamer's Darkness Rising. Did you ever watch that? I never did. It's hilarious. I highly recommend it. It is so on the nose with everything. But in you know, the, one of the characters wants to play an elf monk. And the DM is saying, there are no monks in my setting. And he says, it's in the core book. You're breaking the rules by not letting me use something in the core book. And right. he says, fine, you're, you can be a monk, but you're, you cannot be an Eastern monk. You're strictly a Western style monk. This is a Western civilization type, you know, setting. And he says, fine. And then a few seconds pass and he says, and I'm an elf. And the DM's like, no, there are no elves in my, in my game, you know? So uh. it's, this is a conversation that we've been having since the beginning of role-playing games. Right. And the the books have continually explicitly said DMs can disallow stuff. Strangely, that doesn't seem to carry any weight. I mean, look, in the, the, the DMG2 intro, Zeb Cook says, Yep. Rule zero. Yep. Uh, there is a way to make choices that fit your table. Right. And like, culturally, it's pretty darn clear to me that um, within Wizards of the Coast, they believe the rule that they've written around what DMs can, can say and have it be okay. Uh, I also know that there are many other kinds of tables. They, it's not that Wizards can solve that, but... like. It is this this cultural rift that um, I mean it's not it's not solvable, right? It right. Isn't, well, that, it isn't right. to be They're, solved. It's not um, going to be overcome with a paragraph in the introduction of a DMG. Right, and I mean, uh, I have players at my table that I have talked about this stuff with, and uh, sometimes they feel very strongly about you know. No, I should be allowed to play this content as written, and uh, you know, as often as not, they're not. They, we're not having an argument about my table. Uh, we're having, you know, a, a 
conversation you know relating to that player's experience at another table where they got more pushback from the gm of that table kind of thing right so it it's a it's a mess um but it really does factor into what i'm trying to get at with dnd is conscious of itself as a living document and so from that sidebar we go right into uh, the actual chapter one, group storytelling. So one of the things that this DMG constantly, consistently does is it says, hey, we mentioned this topic in the original, you know, in the DMG one on page whatever, or in chapter whatever, but this is an expansion on that, or this is a review of that material to try to clarify or to to give you more ideas related to some aspect of this that wasn't covered the first time we mentioned it. Now here's more in depth stuff. Um, and you know, they talk about story structure in the DMG one and here it is again, and it's being presented in a, in a slightly different manner to try to give you a sort of new way to think about how you're structuring the story that is being told at the table and how, you fit into it and how the characters fit into it. There's this, uh, as you say, it's sort of getting right into recapitulation. And I wonder, um, I, I'd love to like talk to people about this in a, in a surveying sense to, to turn you know, anecdotes into data as it were, um, where you, uh, just try to find out like who found this to be the, the phrasing they needed all along to understand something. Uh, the first thing I really want to sort of get into is uh, the, the whole thing about pass fail branching, which I don't super consciously design for because I'm in the habit of uh, trusting my ability to improvise to feed me a new idea with sort of just-in-time supply rather than doing a lot of prep around, I'm going to have them roll for this. Do I have something cool regardless of whatever, whatever way that roll goes? right? Um, because I haven't decided there's going to be a roll at any point. That's not how I think. Um, yeah, for but, me, it's more about what player actions or what PC actions are leading up to that moment. It's not about, oh, well, when they get here, I'm going to make them roll a perception check or a nature check to, right. you know, I, I don't think that way either. However, the thing, the reason this is helpful, though, is because um, that is the way that adventures are written. For sure. Public consumption. For sure. And... You know, one can certainly wish to see this uh, set of ideas more, you know, uh, carefully implemented in mm -hmm. published adventures. Mm -hmm. And if you're an adventure writer, you could do yourself a real favor and reread this in your revision passes of of your work you know, to go through each uh, major ability score check and then each decision point to you know, explore whether you do have something interesting for all of those. Um, I mean, that's a constant, um, 
you know, that's that's kind of a, a a constant thing, a constant discussion topic in the OSR as well. That you know, there's way too much rolling in modern editions. That that's kind of the general vibe that happens, right? There's way too much rolling. Um, yeah, because sure. you look, if there's if there's really no no interest to the you know the way that the story games movement has brought this up is, uh, you know, yes and or no but, and you're not rolling unless there's an interesting consequence to the failure, right? Yeah. Um, and that's really all this is, but this is in D and D language rather than story game language or OSR language. Yep. Right. Yep. Which is is um, which is telling because yeah I mean I, look I'm an old grognard and we we all know I've been playing since the invention of dirt as Jeff Greiner says so like uh, you know I'm very I I tend to think th- think of things first in terms of like first edition style uh-huh. um but I have no problem with fourth edition. And part of the reason I have no problem with fourth edition is because I would just pull my first edition style into it in this book more than probably any of the others in fourth edition really sort of pings on that, but puts these ideas in a modern context. Yep. And I really appreciate that. I think it's a good thing. I feel, I feel like, um, you know, it's a shame that more people don't appreciate this particular book. So anyway. Yeah. Um, This is just, like I said, an extensive discussion with a very extensive sidebar of examples uh, Mm -hmm. about branches in the narrative. Um, I mean, this is even more of a thing in um, making video games because you can't create content on the fly. Right. Uh, You've got to (laughs) anticipate every, way things could go and figure out which things the player might want to do you're able to support and then and then yeah how how many of those are actually able to be implemented right you can't just provide a dialogue that has 10 different options oh but you if you unless you choose the two that we can actually implement it's not really meaningful right like well then don't offer them 10 no kidding you know, encounters as branch points is a really nice, like, even header to just trigger mm-hmm. sort of the reminder of, you know, if this encounter wasn't a branch point, pretty likely it shouldn't have been there. If there weren't at least two solid ways things could go, what were we deciding with this encounter? Right. Well, and see, that's also, let me point out the difference between sort of the old school style and new school, new school style. That's definitely a new school thing. And the reason is because in the past, when you got gold for XP and when you got, when you, you know, when it was possible, if you randomly stumbled across something that might provide some treasure, that was the reason because it's giving you XP, Um, It doesn't matter that it's random and maybe only tangentially connected to the overall storyline. That wasn't expected. But in this case, when you're talking about an experience point system that's very different, and in a game where combat might take a long time, even if it's a small, meant-to-be-quick skirmish, uh, it definitely needs to be meaningful each time. That's a distinct difference between old and new school. 
it's appropriate in this book, but it's the kind of the one kind of ethos change that is so glaring. So anyway, well, I mean, it is an ethos change in this book. I don't think it is well reflected at all in actual published adventures that every published adventures encounters should have some way they could plausibly go other than PCs win or adventure stops. Absolutely. No, I I'm in agreement with that. I just mean in terms of the overall ethos of the, the way new school or sort of more modern RPGs, modern D and D versus older D and D. So next we move on to cooperative arcs, um, which is really just uh, sort of hot seat GMing. You know, you run several sessions to tell a complete story. Then you go back to playing your PC, and one of the people playing a PC steps into the GM seat and lather and repeat. And that's that's it's fine way to do it. It's not something I've done um, because um, in my gaming community, everyone who's in the DM seat really actively enjoys the the lonely fun and creative exercise of GMing and has you know things they want to reveal to the players and is laying long-term plots and so on well you can't hand over the reins if you're doing that kind of thing well I mean this is really just about letting the players help build the campaign but you're still the only DM running it okay well, my bad. I know what you're talking about. I think that's later. That's okay. in a different chapter. Um, this is more just, hey, involve the players in talking about what your themes of your campaign are going to be and have them, you know, discuss with them what kind of player they want to play or what kind of PC they want to play and what, what kind of story they want to tell. And then use their ideas when you're, you know, and get, it's going to get everybody excited about it. Uh, then we get to cast of characters, and here is where there is a direct link between this book and 5th edition, because if you look on page 13, when it talks about core motivations, you know yep. what core motivations are? Core motivations are your ideals that you give to your PC when you're in character creation in 5th edition. Yep. And then interrelationships, you know what interrelationships are? Sounds Those like are your bonds that you are giving to your player then there is they have a little section on contrasts which really just means little slight rivalries um, between pcs they don't bring that directly into fifth edition except that the bonds can have a little bit of that where the way that they're written in fifth edition they can have a little bit of that but they don't get their standalone kind of thing um and uh, i mean it's a great section but it's i mean when you read it you could be reading the fifth edition like rationale for why you should use ideals, bonds and flaws in fifth edition. Absolutely. Um, And they are good. It's just that it's too common for players to kind of uh, choose from uh, what's on the menu instead of asking the chef for the special. Um, Right. And, uh, and see, that's what leads to this DM workshop sidebar though. Yep, because this is the continuation of the the sidebar from the cooperative page, and they're talking about how they're determining all the interrelationships between the PCs and what their motivations are, 
in a cooperative manner, sort of as they're sitting there making their PCs. Yep. Well, and that sort of, okay, we need to share goals, that's useful actually, is something that, you know, uh, we can honestly say needed to show up in, in 5e uh, right there in the DMG, but it's okay because Tasha's really, really gets into it. Descent into Avernus really, really gets into it. Um, and so on. Yeah. I would posit that that information, that that should not be in an adventure. Yes. I would it agree with be, you. should but, be in a different book. Well, well uh, Having everyone's uh, shared motivation tie into that adventure, a- a- aces, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't mean it shouldn't be in Avernus. I, it should be in an adventure if it's applicable to that adventure for sure. Right. But what I'm saying is, it shouldn't only be there. You yep. shouldn't force the consumer to purchase the adventure. Yeah, I to agree get with you. that bit of rules information if they're not going to run that adventure. Yep, I agreed. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so there's a couple other um, sort of things about campaigns. Predestined is something that um, it makes sense in in 4e, right? Where you have to pick an epic destiny. Um, it makes sense in 4e where you tell the GM what kind of tra- treasure you'd like to find, but that kind of fate play, um, not in the sense of fate the rpg but like something is fated to come about this is the way i want my story to play out that is that is a very specific mode of play that um other editions of DD haven't even discussed to say nothing of explored in any detail and really like i i most know about it from um american freeform larping and uh, Nordic style LARPing uh, where everyone has agreed in advance, like what this scene is going to end on. And that's a very specific technique that is not used in all cases. And it's never used in um, buffer LARPing. Yeah. And to be fair, I mean, it only gets, uh, you know, two paragraphs here. And I think that's for good reason, because I don't think that it's, necessarily a style that is all that popular to be honest i i yeah, partly because i think that you know in an rpg you're you're playing in in a lot of cases because you want to see what happens right you you want to see the growth and how what cool things you can get and all that stuff as you progress in level or whatever if you're playing a level based game if you're already predestined to have a certain thing happen at the end, it kind of takes the oomph out of it in some ways, unless you're playing an RPG where the journey is the thing, then it's, then it's how you get there when you know what the ending is, but how do you get there? But in D and D it's usually not played that way. Yep. I agree with that. Um, I think that we do mostly want the emergent play to, be allowed to fully inform you know, how it all ends. Um, so next up is cooperative world building. Um, this is one I really struggle with because I enjoy world building so much that uh, I 
want to be able to surprise my players with things, and it's really a lot harder to surprise them with something they made up. Yeah, so um, I feel like these the examples and the and the text of this section try to they try to impart the caveat that you're expressing right now. They, they try to say, you know, this is really great and it gets lots of buy-in from the players and it can be a really, really enjoyable experience, but you need to always surprise them. You need to always put a twist in or change it somehow to make it so that you're still surprising them and you're still the one that's determining the crux of everything yep, and you're allowing them some, some narrative applications into the game world, but they have a limited view of it. So you're always able to adjust what they have brought in into a form that is surprising even to the person who stated. And in fact, one of the, uh, one of the, is it on this page? There's uh, an example. Oh, the tentacle temple example on page 18. Um, uh, do you see a watchtower? Carlos asks, or do I see a watchtower? Carlos is the player. This is a little, uh, you know, script thing. And uh, it says basically before the DM can reply, another player says, oh, look over there, that horrible tower rising from the central plateau. But then in the example, the DM says, oh yeah, you see that. And then this thing happens that makes that tower <laughs> much worse than what the characters had first or what the players had first put into it in fairness i i don't know that many players that would take yes you can describe the tower uh, as the opportunity to make it as horrible as possible just to see if the dm will one-up them sure i mean well so one of my comments about this book as as i was going through one of the comments i wrote uh as a note to myself was so many of the examples in here are just not great. Yeah, they're a little contrived. They're really contrived, and they're in that horrible script style <laughs> that you see in first and second edition. And I can't remember if it's at all in third edition because I wasn't in that. Oh edition, yeah, it is. It's it's <laughs> yeah, so it bad. It's so bad. But my point still stands that the idea of this example is: yeah, you took a thing that they said and you turned it into something that was in this case even worse but there's also the very next one the dragons love elves one same idea <laughs> yeah the, where the players know, trying to put one over on the dm oh yeah yeah and, and the, the dm's DM. like oh yeah <laughs> really the last line is whoops says yep. paul <laughs> you know and, and the dm totally pants them with it right yeah yeah right um, i mean but but my point still stands right that i agree with you i i agree with what you're saying and they try to say, yes, you want to allow for some narrative control from the players if they enjoy it. There's a lot of ways they can do it. Here are how they could do it. Here, you know, here's how they might, you know, produce this narrative information into the world. They also go so far as to say it's always the DM's choice, though. It's always the DM's choice. Yep. And you shouldn't let them do too much because then 
uh, using the techniques of cooperative world building at the right times and not too often and not too seldom gives them a maximal impact. If you continually ask players to describe your world for you, they lose belief in it and they come to think of it as too malleable. But if you call on them too infrequently, then your requests for input will seem jarring yep. and basically pull them out of the game, right? So they're trying to give caveats and they're trying to say, this can be a great technique if you use it sparingly and if you're judicious about how you how you inform the game with the player's suggestions, basically. Um, but they spend a lot of text just saying what I just said in about three sentences, right? Um, and you know, I said at the beginning of this section that I didn't really love it. Uh, the fact of the matter is, like in, in my home setting, um, the, the whole continent they're on is made up of all these different uh, you know, small kingdoms. And... Um, the PCs have spent almost the whole campaign in this one kingdom. Um, and when a PC wants to come from somewhere far away, which is not terribly uncommon with all the new players that have come through, um, I get them to help, get them to help me describe it. Right. Um, if they want to, and you know, it might be as simple as, well, here's this kind of idea I've been wanting to see in a game. Uh, what do you think about that? And we riff on it for a bit, and that's where we land. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Which is exactly what uh, fits exactly into this section. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but that's about the only time where I really do that. Now, I also have a player who really, really invests in detail that I have a hard time ever making matter at the table, so I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's a, a thing about me as you know my way of enjoying games if i can't get it to enjoy it to, to impact the narrative uh sort of academic knowledge of it doesn't bring me a lot of joy right. um, and so that's another place where i would you know seek the player's help and i know that the, the section specifically references that you don't see why the question matters and it's not that i don't see why it matters it's that um i don't have a compelling need for it to do any one thing Right. And in that case, it might, it's almost better to let the player say why it matters or, you know, whatever. Because if it does matter to them, then fine. They might actually say something that you are able to link to something later on. Probably not, but it it could happen. And you, however, trying to stop and try to think of, okay, well, what could I say here that's going to make this matter? It's just going to put the brakes on, right? Like that just puts a wrench in, you know, there's, you know, the thing is when you're running a game, there's so much going on. Like there's so many things going through my head. Like I don't, uh, sometimes uh, my players will ask a question and it's like, okay, I need a minute to think about this because I got to figure out if it matters enough to, you know, I have to kind of pause. Does this matter enough for me to even care about the answer? You know, you know, that, that certainly it's, it's like a, it's a hard stop there for a second, you know? So no, I totally, I totally get you. I totally get you. I think that's probably we're probably describing everybody else who also has a heavy improv style as part yeah. of their, you know, because that's how you you get into a flow. Like it, like I know heavy improv seems sounds like to somebody thinks that I'm saying that means I'm making it up all as I go. And while that is kind of true, it's not really that that loses all the nuance of 
the background information and the lore and the things that we have in our heads that we're pulling from to create the improvisation. And just the thinking about, well, I've thought about what kind of person this is, what they want. The the action is improv. The personality and the goals are carefully determined. Right. Exactly. Right. And I mean, I've been listening to your show um, and all the lore that you have spouted in that, like there's clearly a lot of prep that went into that lore. Right. Yeah. Well, Um, I mean, I've been running the world for, (laughs) you know, uh, years. Yeah. Yeah. When you were talking about the different wars in past eras, I was really getting that. Right. Um, And so you don't need to prep in the same way. You know how the world should react. Right. And I, and I know how certain types of, of NPCs will react to certain types of questions and maybe 90% of the things that could happen, 90% of the interactions won't trigger an outmoded response from that NPC, but some will. And I know that, and that may never get seen in the game, right? At some point, they might accidentally trigger something or say something or present an idea that causes an NPC to adjust their behavior or their thoughts about that particular group of people, and now that changes the interaction. And that's not improv. That is, that's from the lore. Yep. So anyway, so yep, then it I moves agree. on, <laughs> and uh, it talks about role-playing hooks. Yep. I I'll say straight up, I love, love, love the sidebar here. Uh, my son, the Fire Archon. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Because it's doing something that was harder to do in 4E, and the introduction of D&D Insider made much, much harder, mm-hmm. uh, which is to really custom tailor all those powers that people were buying to a theme that was off the beaten path. Right. And, you know, the. The sidebar is um, James Wyatt explaining that um, uh, his son like wanted to play a fire archon as a character. Like that's the whole theme that he had in his head, mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily I want to play him as this one class. I lo- like this class's gameplay loop or any such thing. It's just fire archon sounds awesome. Let's do that, and so he did, and he did so with with confidence and presumed diploma. But then in the sidebar, he says exactly what he did, which yep. is the helpful part, right? Yep. Um, because you could then see a pathway to, oh, well, so if somebody throws this odd concept out at me, I might be able to find a way to make it work. As long as you and they are comfortable uh, not really using D&D Insider at all. Right. Uh, right. Because you can write a custom power for every power they're going to pick up, you don't wanna. Right. It's right. horrible, and obviously D and D Insider is shuttered now, so this is sure. all very past tense. But you get me. But at the time, yeah. So this section though is basically about how uh, if you're going to start a campaign, it's possible to uh, say, "Hey, hey, players." Uh, I'm going to run this campaign. Here's the themes of it. And by the way, I have these, these sort of backgrounds that you could think about using, uh, that 
you know, they're going to fit well into the campaign because of the campaign themes and the story arcs that I'm planning. Uh, and so if you want to take these, great. Um, but you'll note that these backgrounds are not, um, they're not really, they're not mechanical backgrounds, right? They're, the, what would the two examples he gives are very much just story based. Sure. So, so that the player, and that's exactly what this is talking about role playing hooks. It's not mechanical hooks. It's not, let me give you a background that's going to greatly help the mechanics of your character, and that's why you're going to want to use it. It's, here's a role playing hook that gets the player interested in how their PC relates to the setting at character creation. Right. And that's the whole idea of this. And then the other side of that was the idea of, well, what if the piece, what if the player wants to play a PC that's completely like out of whack, not even thought of yet, like the fire archon, how would you do that? And, you know, to try to show you, it is possible to do that too. It's a good two page spread. It's not bad. Yep. Yep. Um, well, and, and talking about uh, keeping the lines taught in, in terms of just reminding people, with things that happen in the game about you know, what's already established and making sure the background remains important and relevant, right? Like use that content. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. That That's all good stuff. And uh, what I think I wish this got into was some of the data management tools that you can use to make that easier on yourself as a GM. Uh, the, the most classic is certainly the deck of index cards, right? Right. Just, I need a new influence on this next encounter. Uh, let me draw a card. Okay. Right. Maybe that sparks something, or maybe I draw again. Yeah, in fact, uh, that's why I like the, um, you know, Numenera has this set of, the Monty Cook Games creates this set of decks of cards for Numenera that are like... Um, so Numenera has an asset deck and an NPC deck and, and the NPC deck, when you pull it, it gives you like a name and occupation or something and motivation. Right. And the asset deck has like, um, you know, it, it, it gives you things like, uh, you draw it when the player needs some inspiration, right? Like vivid memory. You remember doing this once before or reading about it. So you decrease the difficulty of completing this task this time, right? Sure. Or perfect one-liner. You have the perfect joke, anecdote, or reply, or comeback, or story to make to the person that you're talking to, and that charms them just the teeniest amount, and they are now on your side, right? Like, And so, you know, it's that sort of thing where, you know, that's, of course, tailored to Numenera, so it's around ciphers and increasing or decreasing the difficulty by one level and things like that, which mean different things for, from what D&D &D would have. But something like that is very much in the wheelhouse of what I would use to help me, you know, put a twist on a situation, right? Yep. And you can actually tailor, if you made those yourselves, you could tailor them to the campaign and to the PCs, right? It's a lot of work, though. So, so right. Um, we'll move on to vignettes. Yeah, so vignettes. So, so this is something that I've been doing a lot more in my birthright campaign. Um, just super short uh, scenes that um, let us like flash to a single 
not even a whole encounter, really, a lot of the time. Just sort of um, some description, maybe a couple of exchange lines, and then the thing is resolved uh, in a lot of cases. Um, and obviously, critical role goes heavy on dream sequences. So that's a great example. Do they? Uh, uh, yeah. Um, it's it, where, where I am in listening to the podcast right now. Um, there were two dream sequences back to back, one for um, Ashley and one for Travis. And then instantly thereafter, some stuff went down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was very clearly sort of um, presaged by the um, but by the dream sequences. It was a, a big, scary deal and very impressively done. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, this is something that – so the reason I like this section is because it provides different types of vignettes. Um, uh-huh. So you, you know probably from my D&D brief game that I did a dream – sequence with Imran, the character Imran, early yeah. on. Uh-huh. Uh, and that it has a specific relationship to the actual game, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that it, in the podcast that just paid off in a big, big way uh, in the last episode I listened to because I'm one behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it will later, I mean, they, I think they spend three episodes in the library. Nice. So it's it has like there's a lot uh, happening there, but anyway, yeah, anyone who played the LARP that uh, we ran is very sympathetic to. I just spent three episodes in the library. Yeah, right, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, because this game went from okay, we're going to Calport. All right, ten sessions later, <laughs> right, right, ten months later, twelve sessions later, whatever. We're in Calport now. Oh, now let's go to the library for three whole sessions. Ah. <laughs> 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 but anyway, um, so the reason the reason I like this section is because it gives these different types of these things. So that particular dream sequence that Imran was involved in, I had the other players, two of the other players, play the part of some thugs, right? I've I've used a flashback in my games before where I had other players play people in the flashback, right? NPCs in the pla- flashback of that was focused on one PC or whatever. Um, I, I wouldn't say I'm good at it. Uh, I, I, I kind of feel like a lot of times they're hard for me to set up because I'm very improv. I'm high on the improv scale and I have a hard time giving direction to the people playing the other the playing the NPCs, right? So sure. The, the players sure, that are playing sure. the other. And I feel like, you know, in the example they give here, like they get the they give the the other player one sentence. Oh, your motivation or your job is to do this, and like that's perfect. And but somehow, I seem to, and this has happened in a couple of different uh, campaigns. I seem to not be able to give that one sentence description of motivation in a yeah. way that invests that other player with enough knowledge to be able to pull it off as well as I want it to be. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah. So, so that thing you're talking about is a, a skill we have to really seriously develop through LARPing because we use volunteers to play roles all the time. 
that's it's a huge part of our uh, like ability to present characters at all. And um, we give as much of a, a briefing as we can. Briefings might range from uh, you're this dude from here and you are trying to trade for money and maybe you're a scumbag. Good luck. Mm. To <laughs> to here are the character histories of everyone involved in this whole noble family, and then here's your personal background, which is another thirty seven pages. Um, you've got twenty minutes. Go. Oh. <laughs> well, and, and that's that's an exaggeration. Yeah. But no, I know. <laughs> really, in all seriousness, we had a one day event uh, where we. We didn't have a cast for someone who needed to go on to become a main villain. And we had someone who had never gamed with us before, but was a very experienced LARPer show up to help. And it turned out that uh, she fit into um, one of Rabbit's dresses. We put her in that dress, gave her literally five minutes of briefing, and she ran with it and mm-hmm. like elevated the text. It was this beautiful moment of just expertise meeting a juicy role. Nice. Like that's, that's exactly the thing you, you want to have happen, but I mean, it's, it's a skill and it's a skill that I, as a player don't always possess, even though I've been, you know, LARPing and role playing for uh, a minute. Right. Yeah. So, and you know, I've, I've wrestled with it in the past because I've wrestled with the idea. Well, is it just me? Am I just thinking that it's not going off as well as, as I think it should, because maybe I just am, I don't want to lose control of it or I don't like giving the, but that's not it. Cause I'm a hugely cooperative, like, you know, I've, I've run hugely cooperative games. Like I'm not, it's not about a control thing for me. It's just that I, I don't, I, I just, I guess I just, I cannot form the idea well enough to give it to the right player in the format that is needed for them to do what I think the scene is, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know, whatever. We yeah. don't have to build uh, over this point. No, I, um. <laughs> I, think it, I think it just uh, does take that kind of practice that is hard to get any other way than, um, you know, getting a boot in the button into the swimming pool's deep end, right? Right. And yeah. and there's also a lot of needing to just totally let go of the outcome and be willing to lean all the way into whatever the player that you've assigned this role to decides, right. which sure. I, I'm sure you're willing to do, but it's a, it's a whole mental exercise in itself. Right, right. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, yeah, absolutely. But here's why I bring all this up. There's a reason this is in the DMG too, because this is somewhat advanced in terms of being able to pull it off in a way that is understandable and flows really well and keeps getting full buy-in from the PCs. Yep. And then they talk about uh, drama rewards. It gets about three paragraphs. (laughs) Well, um, I like that there's the mention of uh, you might hear the capper phrase and we didn't roll roll dice once because I mean we've definitely had those sessions where a, a lot of really dramatic stuff happened there was never anything that actually called for a die roll and yeah of course D&D was still the right system to be using our goal was not to engage with the system more uh, <laughs> our goal was right. to have a system to go to when we weren't sure what outcome we wanted to have happen right 
right? When there was a question as to what should happen. Well, in those dramatic scenes, there wasn't a question. There was a question to resolve, but it wasn't a question that we wanted the dice to answer for us. Right. Yeah. Nope. I'm fully on board with that. Yeah, I've had, I, I, I always bristle at the idea of someone telling someone else, well, you're playing the wrong game. Right. Big same. So, so, sometimes uh, that's an okay response, I guess. Um, but it's, usually... It's rarely constructive. It, it, it really comes off as an, as a, uh, an attack critique rather yep. than a, hey, I think you might be playing the wrong game. Here's why I think that, and here's what you might want to look into instead, because you might have a lot more fun with this, which is very much different from, oh, you're just playing the wrong game. You yep. should be playing something else. Yep. So, but, but anyway. Um, but yeah, no, I, I hear you. So next up we get uh, what your players want, immediately followed by companion characters. Wait, wait, wait. No, no. You mean oh, sidekicks? Oh, yeah, no. They're companions. Yes. The, yeah. These are sidekicks in 5th yeah. edition, if you weren't following yeah. along. Yeah, it's it's adapted extremely closely in concept, um, because this is a great idea. It's a simplified mm-hmm. character. Right. What's a sidekick, Sam? Simplified character. There you go. That's <laughs> outstanding. Yeah. Um, well, and, and the, the character survey questions... Um, in what your players want is great for just, um, hey, go think about your character some. Like, maybe think about some some questions you didn't even consider before that mm-hmm. aren't you know part of how your character intersects with game rules, right? Right, right. Um, and I think and, that's good. You know, I, I I have often gotten pushback when I say things like you know, talk to your players and ask your players, right? Like yep. talk to your players, ask them what, what they liked about the session, ask them what they want, ask them if it, if it's fun for them, ask them if they would, if they wanted something to change, if they, if they could change one thing, what would it be? And, you know, stuff like that. And I often get pushed back. Oh, well, you know, but players won't be honest necessarily, or maybe they don't want to be put on the spot or, you know, maybe they don't want to critique you because you're still, you know, running the game for them or whatever, like, and, and all those might be valid reasons, but I still will maintain, you should always be talking to your players. And so I, I sort of chuckled when I read this, what, what your players want, you know, telling people to send a survey (laughs) to their players, you know, um, because I hear all the time, oh, well, you know, my play, I, I asked them how, how everything was and they just say, oh, it was great or it was fun or that's it. And they never give any other extensive feedback. Well, here you go. Here's a bunch of questions right. that might get you a little more than a one word. It was great feedback because they are very specific directed question. Right? right. Rate your enjoyment of each of the following types of adventures from one to 10, 10 being the best long adventure, short adventure, linear, open play. Um, combat, interaction with NPCs, puzzles, investigation, mysteries, right? Like, it, there it is. And then yep. you could add, you know, uh, if we, do we need more of any of these in the game? Do we need less of any of these in the game? You know, and there it is right there. And you and you may not get a, the survey back from all of your players because you know what? People are people. Yep. Um, in my own campaign, we've, uh, what campaigns we've been leaning into uh, Roses, Thorns, and Wishes as a feedback model. Uh, that's working out pretty well. Back in college, um, and even before college, I had this four-page questionnaire 
of things that I'd gotten from my drama class in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I only had about one player who cared about engaging with that, but he would not play a character for multiple campaigns running until he had filled out that survey. That was such an important part of feeling attachment for the character to him. Yeah. That's cool. It was, it was great. And he was certainly someone who would play well thought out, um, like internally consistent characters. He, he was playing very iconic characters, right? But if that's his process, God bless him. And he's a great player to have at any table. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah. No, that's cool. So companion characters. Um, if you've read about sidekicks in 5e, you can probably imagine everything we're going to say on your own. Um, yeah. Though they do also get into um, monster stats. Like monsters as companions is what I'm trying to say, and that's something that maybe oddly um, uh, the essentials kit and uh, Tasha's expect you to do with the uh, the sidekick levels. It's kind of it's kind of odd. It's not bad, just a little odd, um, but it does work, right? Yeah. If I'm- you want to have you know uh, your your cool. I don't know, displacer beast companion or whatever it is, be able to gain levels as a sidekick mm-hmm. so that they stay a relevant part of the party. I mean, who are we to argue? It, it doesn't actually break anything. They just don't use the same kinds of weapon attacks as other creatures. So whatever, yeah. like you'll figure it out. It's fine. You know, I feel like that is a, a trend uh, that is around lately that, and, and, not not just it's not new let's put it that way yeah. uh look if there's an animal everybody wants to adopt them right i mean right. look why was splug in in fourth edition the goblin in 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 uh, keep on the shadow fell was adopted well, by right. so so many groups right and really really famously um meepo in um Citadel. that's where i was going with that and meepo in in um in third edition and there was probably one in second edition that I just can't bring to my head right now, right? Uh-huh. Like it's a common kind of trope. And when you get um, players who want to adopt the 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 oppressed animal or the oppressed creature or the sad creature or the you know the uh, in my rhyme of the frost maiden game the polar bears that had been enslaved by the goblins and and being forced to you know basically be a sled dog for them. Yep. Um, you know, they want to either free that animal or and adopt it, or free it and treat it nicely. And and ha- and you know, how do you do that? Well, you use rules like this. And so, yeah, I think it's you know uh, the the thing the thing I like about this section is it talks about them just as a concept, and then it says here's how you would use a monster here's here's what you would do specifically to a monster in this edition of the game to make it a companion character. And then if you want to create a unique companion character, here's how you would do that regardless of species, race, class, whatever. Um, And it, and then here's how to put some traits on it. Here's how to determine what its motivation is. Here's, here's how to create the stat block for it. And here's how to play it. Basically, I mean, I this is a great 
this is a great little crunchy end bit to chapter one, as far as yep. I'm concerned. Yep. Um, because in fourth edition, this was a boon for sure. Yeah. Um, and it's something I, I, I tried in my own blog for a bit before, mm-hmm. um, Central's kit came out, but, right. um, it's, it's good stuff. Um, so next up, we get making things level. And ba- basically, this is just a section that tells you how to either upgrade or downgrade a, a character that's being brought into the game, uh, either temporarily or, you know, right. as a guest star or whatever. So, so in um, uh, City of Heroes, this would have been called uh, mentoring or exemplaring, mm-hmm. uh, where mm-hmm. you either jump up in level or jump down in level to match the rest of the party. Yep. And then there's a, this wonderful sidebar about having multiple characters per player, which is really just uh, telling you about, you know, how to uh, run a West Marches style game. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like that's, yeah, yeah. Doing it in a single party. Uh, I especially wouldn't do it in fourth well, edition, but sure, sure. Um, like the, the troop style. I mean, mm-hmm. I am very long on record as thinking that's great. Right. That's that's how my main campaign runs. My main campaign that hasn't run since, you know, March, but but yeah, I mean it, it works really, really well because five E doesn't care about balanced parties. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't. Right. Um you can have really oddly sort of mismatched parties and things will be fine. Like right. if you if you're really pushing up against the you know maximum of what your characters can do, then okay, party balance matters more. If you have no healer at all and you're really pushed hard, then that's a problem. But you can get away with a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That brings us to chapter two. Yeah, advanced encounters is really good stuff because we don't talk that much about how to really punch up each individual encounter and make them sing. Right. Mm-hmm. So building on the past, you need to treat everything that's happened before as context and really exploit that. And, you know, uh, they're kind of leaning on this text kind of leans on the PCs to like, be thinking about that context and to have been given enough foundation to make rich, interesting decisions, uh, mm-hmm. both in action and in their dialogue. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't know that a, a ton of uh, players would say in their in-character dialogue, no, Angar will f- uh, feed us to the ogre if we flee. But <laughs> fine, whatever. Uh, folks, that is an actual line in yeah. the book, okay? <laughs> Brandis did not make that up. <laughs> yeah, and, and God bless your players if they will bring that kind of like heightened verbiage to your game. Uh, I'm just saying it's not my typical experience, uh, even in very good groups, uh, setting encounter objectives and the outcome matters. Um, really, uh, this is, this is a lesson that frustrates me so much because it has to be retaught on what feels, feels like about a five year cycle, but, um, just it, it's learned as if from new each time. And, and the whole thing of it is encounters are more interesting. If, there is a a goal for the encounter other than all of one side is dead or all of the other side is dead. I know it's harder to write, but 
boy, is it better. And I have a hard time with it in my own game, right? It, it, it's, it's, this section is followed by two full pages of example encounter objectives, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, there's a, a guy, Matthew Hansen, who uh, wrote a book called uh, Ed- Alternate Objectives for 4th Edition for Sneak Attack Press. Nice. Basically building on, you know, uh, building on the idea, these kinds of ideas. I can't remember what year it was published or whatever, but, um, but yeah, I mean, th- this is, you know, I-, I really like this section because the whole building on the past thing is really super important in fourth edition because combats tend to be these big set piece type things. And because it is the more modern RPG ethos that I was talking about earlier, where the encounters, every encounter should matter. Right. In first edition, that wasn't necessarily the case. There were lots of random encounters. There was lots of, you know, dungeon delving where the an individual encounter might not matter as much to the overall basic story arc as the fact that it's going to get you experience or gold or treasure of some sort. Right. Whereas in fourth and fifth edition, particularly, it's really important for encounters to matter. And in 5th edition, the reason I say that is because basically we have chucked the idea of XP, of, of tracking experience points. I mean, the latest adventures just assume you're going to level the players with milestones. You're just yep. going to use milestone XP. You're not. It doesn't even matter if you track experience points gained. And if that's the case, that means that the encounters specifically have to serve the purposes of the story, and they don't have to be random. They don't have to just be there for experience point gain. They don't have to just be there because. Just because. For right. no real reason. I mean, right? they should always be delivering characterization about the setting or the villain's plans or something. So, some kind of reaction by the world to something you've done or some signaling some new threat or something, right? Or you or you find a clue based on something you find in the aftermath of the battle. Or or maybe you have an encounter that is the reward for a good mm-hmm. thing you did previously. Hey, a long time ago we spared this guy who we could have chosen to kill. Well here's the payoff ten sessions later or ten levels later, uh you know, we're finally getting something from that, and it's great. Or just two sessions later, hey, when we came into this area, we were attacked by a band of goblins, and they had this particular symbol on their tunics, right? Yep. And then two sessions later, you have a group coming in trying to tell, you know, the, the who, whoever's in charge of the town, the mayor, hey, there's a big group of goblins coming, and nobody's believing this person, and you get to step up and say, hey – there are a threat out there. There is a goblin threat out there because we were attacked. We know exactly what this is. We think we could probably find their hideout. So while the town is defending itself from the big goblin attack, you get to go to the hideout, try to kill the boss, right? That's encounter as story setup, right? So even though that individual encounter might not have seemed like it meant anything at the moment, the DM knew that it was going to mean something. And that's exactly how 4th edition wants you to do things. Yep. Um, so the sample encounter objectives are all A+. Just th- this, is, this is great material. I'm just going to 
read off what they are. We're not going to go into detail on them because they, they do explain themselves to a considerable degree, but there is also good text to read. Like I, I cannot say enough good about picking up a hard copy or PDF of this book to just remind you of what you already know if you're an experienced DM. Uh, so, so the sampling counter objectives are make peace, protect a person or an item, uh, retrieve an object, sneak in, or stop a ritual. Those are great examples. You could still do a bunch more. Um, like we've had some some great great encounters in uh, my friend Colin's campaign that amount to capture the flag. Right. Right. Um, it's very much you know uh, take this widget from over here to over there, uh, do it x many times. Uh, you'll be getting shot the whole time. Okay, good luck. Right, this is amazing. It's outstanding. It's such a good encounter model that I just don't really ever see, and it needs to be more of a thing. I can't figure out how else to tell you that. But to do that, you've got to embrace the idea that the bad guys are going to keep coming until the thing is solved and the PCs leave. Right. Uh, there, there's not a, an encounter limit. There's an at one time limit. Mm-mm. Or there's a specific uh, rate of influx. Right. There's a t- timing of waves. Right. So the first wave comes, the second wave comes, the third wave comes, <laughs> right? Uh, at certain time points. And the characters are trying to still achieve the, the alternative goal. It's not about killing all the waves of enemies coming at them. Yep. Absolutely that. I, I just want to see so much more work done in this exact area. This is such an important thing, um, especially for just getting the, the, the characters in a narrative position of being something other than you know bullies and murder hobos, right? You've either got to really always have them squarely behind the eight ball so that that level of violence is all that's keeping them alive, or you've got to give them other ways out of the encounters than killing everything. So great, yes. So so next up after that is uh, player motivations. And th- the sidebar is here, getting into each of the player motivations in a specific adventure, in, in one DM-specific experience of that adventure, is a great thing. That's a really neat thing. Uh, but um, we, we talked about this pretty extensively in the 4E DMG1, and so I don't know that I have a lot to add right now. I, what I want to add is they present this, they present the same player types, but they're providing specifically different advice, right? They're providing advice about if this is the type of player you have, here's what you might want to think about when you're looking at how the players are seated around the table, right? Or here is how you can engage them in encounters, right? Here's yep. how you can engage them in the game when there's not a combat going on, right? So that they don't check out and end up distracting the other players, right? Sure. Like, and I feel like, I don't remember exactly what the, uh, how it was presented in the, in the DMG one. Um, but that was just a description of here's what this character or player type does. Uh, here, here's kind of their, their view of the game and here's how they're going to respond to certain types of 
encounters or situations. And this is more of a, hey, really think about this if you want to, if you know you have an actor, an explorer, and a slayer in your party, here's how to seat them so that they don't end up disrupting everybody else's play style. Um, Here's how to try to uh, make sure that your game has enough of this type of interaction so that they don't get bored. And I find that interesting just in the general human psychology way of, you know, most people, to be honest, have not thought about the seating arrangement around a table, right? They just come in and it's like, we'll sit where you're most comfortable, right? Uh, um, right. And I, I think that for me, where you're most comfortable is more important than other considerations. I, sure. Each of my players has chosen where they sit with intent, and I am not going to argue with them. It's not worth it. <laughs> right, right. But um, I would I would maintain that uh, this is still appropriate advice in so, at some tables. Sure. I, I'm certainly fine with tables not being like mine. That's, that's all good. <laughs> um, the, the section on keeping antagonists alive is sort of – you only gave that this tiny little sidebar. Do you understand that needs to be its own chapter? You're killing me. And what's so funny is it's completely misplaced too. Like, why is that on this page? Well, it's because because Robin Laws wrote it. Well, no, it's a follow-on to the Power Gamer because it's it's it hooks into make villains learn. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's really misplaced. It is misplaced. So it needs misplaced. to be its own chapter. Like, <laughs> th- this is another thing I've been talking about in my blog. Um, since um, forever. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, it was a really big thing for us in designing the LARP. Um, we we set up a, a series of the main villains of the whole deal, and each of them had a reason that if the PCs beat them in a fight, they did not die. Right. Right. Uh, whether that was, I can teleport away real stinking fast and you can't do anything about it because... I have the version that can't be counterspelled or whether it was I'm a body hopper or my body goes into regenerative sleep and like, good luck doing anything about that uh, or whatever. One of the, one of our starting points was these all, these things all take a, a, a whole process to kill and have them stay dead. Like a sword in the ribs is not an especial, dis- a special disincentive to them, much less an actual inconvenience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's fine. And so most of the campaign was the PCs working their way through them. Uh, I do recommend this for almost any D&D campaign, by the way. It's a great model. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very important trope. I mean, liches and vampires have solved this right at the gate. And, and I'll note also that back in the vignette section, there's one of the examples that it gives where in the dream or in the flashback or in the, in the vignette of of seeing the, um, you know, you, you, you have the players playing these random NPCs, but in that scene, they meet one of the main big bads, right. And they see that big bads behavior. And um, in fact, was it back there? Maybe it's in the few pages uh, forward here, but anyway, in the example, the P- the players are playing NPCs in a particular town. And they play them in the scene long enough to sort of humanize them, right? They each have different goals. They're gambling or something, and they've got these different goals. And then in the scene, this big, this big evil, big BBEG, right? This big bad evil guy comes in and he destroys like the village or something, 
right? Yep. And even though that wasn't the player, that wasn't the PCs, right? But now the players know that this villain is a horrible and they feel connected to and having they have a reason for wanting that thing dead because he destroyed this he was relentless and without mercy destroying these people who the players were new for like 5 minutes you know what i mean <laughs> but so that's one of the ways to do it right so you can actually keep the antagonist alive by introducing him in vignettes early on so that the PCs don't even really technically have to interact. So you don't have to do any fancy, hey, I have a, a, an ability you can't counterspell yet, right? Like they might not know that yet. Or maybe maybe in the vignette, they actually do get to learn about some of the abilities and powers of the big bad evil guy, right? And that helps them when they face him later and it has the added benefit of they really hate him by then, <laughs> So yeah, I, I love this. It's a it's a very important trope because it works so well. Yep. Faux show. So we're actually still working our way through player types. Um, yeah, right. So the the sidebars in this thing are are interesting. Yep. And the sidebars are also talking about how to keep appealing to those player types. It's all good stuff. Um, there's just there's a lot of detail here. And we can't really make it useful to you um, in podcast form without just doing a line by line read. But I, I cannot say enough good about how useful this text is for thinking about this and uh, thinking about how to appeal to people. And keep in mind that even if someone is mostly one type of player, almost everyone is multiple types of player. Sure, sure. But let me give let me give an example of I'm not going to read this verbatim, but let me give an example of how how meaty this actually is in terms of advice. For example, on page 47, it talks about um, the uh, the the thinker as the, the type, and it moves on to page 48, and it says that one of the ways you can keep this player invested and interested is by being generous with clues. And okay, fine. That's good advice. But then it says, here's some examples of ways you can do that. In other words, yeah, be generous with clues. Here's exactly what we mean. We mean that the clues could uh, describe the enemy's powers or abilities. The clue could describe the weakness in the defense of the enemy. The clue could describe a personality weakness of an NPC. The clue can describe terrain hazards that are known in that particular region. The clue, right? So it actually, and then, and I'm just sort of picking ones that I, I, it's got a lot more detail in there. And I mean, this is actionable advice it's giving you. I, you know, I keep mentioning the seating. It's not just the seating. It's also telling you how to interact with this player at the table and how to do things in your game to keep them interested yep with specific examples and before we move on from this little section i do want to call out something on page 46 sure. that is the sidebar called achievements and it talks about how you could basically give them video game like achievements and so i just want to say about this that they didn't do themselves any favors because 4e had already been compared to World of Warcraft and other CRPGs, non-multiplayer CRPGs. Sure. Uh, 
in a non-favorable manner most of the time. And so, you know, putting a, a, you know, they're not, um, they're not denying it. They're just saying, look, this, so here's, here's what I want to say about this. They didn't do themselves any favors because that was a harsh critique that this edition got. However, I want to say that they made no bones about it. I mean, they're just saying, here's what it is. It is what it is. This is a thing. You can give them achievements. And by the way, by the way, and this is me now talking, by the way, there's a reason that so many damn casual games that you get on your iPhone have achievements related to them. Yes, it is a really good hook. It feels good. It is a loop into your dopamine reward system, and it keeps you playing. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with using that. There's nothing wrong. That's exactly where I'm going with it. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Because it works. There's a reason it's that because it works and it makes people happy. Like I hear what you're saying about Fury was already getting lambasted for being too much like a CRPG and here they are leaning into it. But for God's sake, be willing to learn from other gaming media. You know what I right. mean? Yeah, like, no, totally. Absolutely. And like I, I just feel like it, people who want to like never let the streams cross and never learn from you know the supporting fiction like what's popular in fantasy now how can we tap into that while still keeping our own identity um, how can we you know borrow from CRPGs and take the cool ideas these people have had look folks good writers borrow great writers steal <laughs> it's that simple right um like it, the day they stop adapting is the day they die and right. uh, you know 5e's done a great job of like building subclasses that adapt to the supporting fiction of where fantasy is mm-hmm. it's a big part of why it's popular like I, I i can't be any clearer about that this is a great example of that it's just very bookkeepy on one or more players. It is fun if if you have someone who cares about it. Well, and that's what I was going to say. As I read this, and I kind of chuckled because I made a note on my three by five card, and I, I I was like, oh well, you know, they didn't do themselves any favors. And then I thought about it for two seconds, and I was because I thought, oh well, who the heck's going to keep track of highest damage dealt and most damage taken in a single encounter, and who did the killing blows, and who had many critical hits, except. Some people are just real data mathy people. Yeah, I, I know which player at my table I'd tap for that, 100%. I, I played in a game where a guy had a composition book that he brought with him to every game, and he kept track. He yeah. kept track of how many times people hit, how much damage they did, what weapon they were using, who rolled a crit, how many times, like like all, all of this stuff listed here. And not for the award, like we didn't have, this was not an achievement thing. We weren't doing it to get the award. He was doing it because he was interested in the stats. Yeah. Well, and like that's a, that's a big part of Critical Role fandom too. Um, Is it? Yeah, so, so every part of – at the beginning of every uh, Talks Machina episode, which is the, the talk show about Critical Role. Okay, uh, never seen it. Yeah, it, it's a thing. Um, hey, more power to the fans. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah they have a, a, like an intro of here's some stuff that Critical Role Stats sent us. And it will be something like, um, you know, this is the character with the most natural 20s or 
this is how many in-game days it's been since this thing happened okay. or just, just whatever, like random thing they happen to track because the whole thing is in podcasts and they can go back and check it sure. all. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. I like it. I mean, I'm a data guy, you know, yeah. I, yeah, mean, yeah. I, I, I love the day. I, I don't necessarily want it. I'm, I'm not going to be sitting at the table, taking the data down. So, so I'll say that in the Pendragon, uh, the King Arthur Pendragon great campaign I played in, uh, we did get fairly into uh, highest damage total. Uh, okay. Because it was like it was a point of aspiration for us okay. to mm-hmm. to to land these just uh, obnoxiously huge crits and uh, you know see how far above the expected average of like eight or nine or ten d six we could happen to roll. Mm-hmm. Um, like <laughs> com- combat is only so engaging, right? You, you're playing Ben Dragon for a bunch of other stuff than uh, the, the slaughter part, but that was something we could do to, you know, have some interesting byplay during the stabbing. Yeah, yeah. I I also want to call out before we move on the the number of references to the Cobalt Hall adventure that they have in the sidebars here. But all of these references come they're by James Wyatt. They're little sidebars by James Wyatt. And they come from the Dungeon Master 4th Edition for Dummies yep. book. Um, which is, is is so funny to me. Funny in, in an interesting way. Not funny as in I, I can't believe it, right? But funny as in this is the DMG2 and it has all this great advice. And a lot of this stuff that they're talking about has its kernel in the dungeon mastering for dummies <laughs> book, which I find hilarious. Right. Well, like, that's, that's the reminder that like, even after the DMG, they did write a whole other book that mm. was trying to on-ramp people into DMing. Right. And they're just like, trying to take some nuggets from that to build this book. Right. So then we move on. If you're ready to move on. Yeah, I'm ready to move on. To encounters for large groups. And I have thoughts about this page because I DM'd for a large group at, at one time. Um, I had eight, eight players at one time, which for first edition is not unheard of. But for fourth edition, fourth edition assumed five PCs. Yeah, eight is real rough in fourth. I, I've gone as high as eight in fifth. It was okay. But it helped that I had some especially like quiet watcher players. Um, but but yeah, this like in fourth. Oh no, it it was rough. And I, and in fact, I had one session where nine people showed up. Oh, pass. So um, and you know it can work if no one's disruptive. But here here's what here's why I have feelings about this page because if you're not looking at the sidebar. They don't really tell you squat about how to deal with a large group. All they tell you is to adjust the encounter balance. That's it. And I find that compared to the other advice that's in this book that is so good, this page was so lacking. The fact that it's only one page is so lacking. On the other hand, the sidebar by John 4, 
John Four of role playing tips fame. Yep. Um, is brilliant, and that's exactly it's exactly how I solved the problem of having so many players. I gave them all a job to do. Nice. Uh, among other things, I, I had other things I did as well. Um, but if this sidebar wasn't here, this page would be like you could just put a big X through it because it doesn't even matter. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, the the more monsters, not tougher ones thing is also uh, as it gets into very much about the math, and mm-hmm. so this advice can get shaken up a good bit in in fifth uh it's one of the effects of bounded accuracy though not without limit uh because once you get to mid-level and high-level spells they do what they do and they're unforgiving right yep Mm -hmm. um so encounters for small groups um I've, i've played with this a bit um, it's the same idea. What I what I don't understand is why they don't suggest you have them have companions. Uh, I mean, they say allied NPCs, right? Eh. C- companion characters detailed in chapter one. It does yeah, okay. say that. That's that's there. They could uh, really lean in on that though, and they don't. Oh, oh no <laughs> doubt, no doubt. Um, like one of the best sessions I've ever run. Um, we it was a, a one shot. They spent the whole night at first level. It was three players. Mm-hmm. It just meant that you were you were just catching your breath by the time it's your turn again. Right. <laughs> that was really good for them. It was really really good. Um, so the fact that none of the character roles are optional is a little bit regrettable because that rapid fire pacing is so good. Uh, the couple of times I've run fifth with just two players, and you get that same thing. It's pretty breathless, right? And and that's really wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've run fifth with two players, my two teenage players. Yeah, yeah. Um, and because they're new, they're not as they're not as fast, right? So I don't get that effect from uh, from them. They're they're more methodical and slow, and um, you know, part of that is my own teaching pace. Sure, and and then I never I was about to start picking up the pace, and then the pandemic hit. So, sure, um, but yeah. So, uh, so the one good thing I like about this section is the minion part. Yep, it talks about tips for using minions. That's a good. That's good. Um, and then they throw this finding players sidebar in there. <laughs> that's like it, it's helpful, but it's um, helpful for people who. I guess I haven't been doing this long. It's just, yes, I know about those places. Could you tell me how to trust people at my table and in my house? Right. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know that that's, that's a sidebar for the DMG one, not for the DMG two. Right. Very much. So moving on. Okay. So encounters and attrition. This is, this is good, important material. Um, and, uh, Basically, there's three kinds of paces that they uh, get into here. A balanced pacing, which, you know, the pressure's fairly smooth throughout uh, the spike. Um, So so balanced pacing, like encounter over encounter, you're at roughly the same difficulty. This is fine. Attrition is going to do what it's going to do. And Mm -hmm. so that's fine. Um, the spike. Well, and the, the idea there is 
the encounter difficulty is basically the same, but it actually gets a little bit more difficult because their right. resources are being burned. Right. And so that's what, where the tension comes from. Now, in the Spike model, um, James Marsters comes in and makes your life really hard, is basically <laughs> what it says. Um, it's pretty much a season six kind of deal, mainly. Um, and eventually the house collapses on your head. Yeah. That's what I remember from this. Uh, it's possible I've had a bunch of whiskey tonight. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, so the spike model is basically that uh, since you're hitting the encounter with all of your resources, each, each since you're hitting each encounter with all of your resources, the each encounter is really hard because yep. the DM knows that the way that they're running the game is to hit one major encounter per session and it's really hard because all the PCs have all their resources. So you have to burn through all those resources in one encounter. So it's a climactic, huge encounter. It's a big spike in activity. And then there's no other encounters for the whole rest of the adventuring day, right? It's basically the, hey, if you have a five-minute adventuring day, that means that you only have one major encounter between each long rest. Yep. So it has to be really, really tough. Which is different from the ba- you know the the balancing the balanced pacing is well you have some sort of easier encounters and some harder encounters it all averages out to be about what they can handle per day and the difficulty comes when their resources start running low but they've already had several encounters that day so it's been an exciting long adventuring day very different from the spike where you just have one combat and that's basically it right but I know a lot of people who unwillingly were pacing it as the spike pacing yep. because of the length of combat. Yep. That's absolutely a thing. Um, well, and a lot of like traditional narrative really lends itself to the spike and a lot of um, situations where you've let the players kind of decide where they're going to go and what they're going to do. Like a lot of sandbox play really, really lends itself to spike pacing. Um, and I really deeply wish they had talked about tools to kind of give your players a boot in the rear to get off of pushing you into spike pacing. Like it has to be understood as a as a push and pull situation where because the players have chosen fewer encounters, you're spiking more. Well, that isn't actually great. Uh, so what do you do to get them to choose balanced play? Well, the answer is you put them on a clock. Well, so what I was going to say was I would posit that the rest of this chapter is answering that question for you. Good. Right. Good. So, and I, and I, I, and so what I, what I'm saying by that is this is kind of this two page spread here is kind of the, introduction to here's how we can help you get tools. No, you're right. That's, that's good. Deadlines yet rewards. Very good. Okay. I just hadn't read forward. Yeah, yeah, no. And it's, it's, it's not, so it's not presented that way. It's not presented as, Hey, here's the, here's the idea we're hitting on. And for the next several pages, we're going to give you the tools to deal with this. They just sort of say, Hey, here's this concept. Yep. And then assume that you're going to then, you know, understand where they're going with it. Right. It's kind of let's define our terms. Right. Rather than let's define the questions. Uh, and then escalation pacing, where 
uh, things start off easy and get harder, even as your resources are, are depleting. Um, it, it, this is leaning into the attrition, basically. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. But as you say, drawing characters onward uh, it is kind of about um, getting more toward balanced pacing or escalation pacing and away from spike pacing. Um, like every edition of D and D has been uh, built to like engage more with uh, balanced and escalation and not handle spike pacing as well because spike pacing isn't great for dungeon exploration, frankly. And that's like, once D and D doesn't handle dungeons well, it's time to hang it up. Right. I like their, some of their advice is really good. I find it interesting that um, the, in the prohibitions section here, it's it's saying that you can actually change the pacing or the, or, or how the characters have to react based on certain prohibitions. And it gives a, a suggestion of a curse afflicting the characters so that they, they don't, they can't sleep until they complete it. Eh, okay, whatever. If that works in your setting, fine, but that's not generally going to be available to most settings. Um, then it's the character must perform an extended skill challenge that lasts several days with combat encounters interspersed throughout and that the extended rests that you might take in the middle of that interrupts the skill challenge and makes you fail the skill challenge. So you either have to start over or accept the consequences for failing. So you basically don't get the benefit of the extended rest, which for 5e players, that's the same as a long rest. Okay. Um, And so like, that's an interesting way to do it, to, to turn it into a skill challenge, because when we get to chapter three and they talk about skill challenges, they really hammer home the fact that a skill challenge isn't necessarily something that happens in the course of, you know, 30 minutes or an hour. It could be days or weeks in game time. Right. What's interesting here about the, the skill challenge example um, and the, the house rule that follows it around. I, I uh, like that house rule that follows it. Interestingly, well, you, you know the game that, that that proceeds to place that at the center of its play. Mm-hmm. It's Thirteenth Age, right? It's it's the not quite a Fourier retro clone that is Thirteenth Age. Right, right. They're describing the rules for full heal ups. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, well, I, I thought you were going to say Fifth Edition because you know what Fifth Edition does. Fifth Edition says in the rules. You can only take one long rest in any 24-hour period, full sure. stop. Sure. Therefore, you do not gain the benefit of taking more than one long rest. Unless you actually sit there for the full 24 hours. Right. For, for sure. For sure. Which um, is it's, it's a half-handed way of doing this same thing, right? Right. And it's, it's trying to not get into like overtly um, narrative tools or, or gameist tools, but like – this is saying, no, go ahead and embrace that. And, man, I don't know how I feel about it in 13th Age. Some days I like it, and some days I resent it um, because of the just how it, how it flows. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it takes a very specific type of campaign. And by the time this advice is being proffered, if anybody's been running 4th edition for the whole year before this. Yeah. 
and they're already dealing with the spike issue and the five-minute workday issue. And by the way, the five-minute workday isn't just an issue in fourth edition. It's been an issue in every edition, yep. right? So, you know, th- these are these are known problems, right? And so getting this advice a year later that kind of says, well, make a house rule. Well, if <laughs> right. you've already started to mold your gameplay around the spikes or very large set-piece encounters – then this might not be appropriate for the way that your party and your that your players are telling their story now. Yep. Well, and they're kind of, I think, hoping you'll finish out your current game and then just introduce this to the next one. Still, y- your player community is shaped. Right. And, and, and you're also shaped, right? The DM is sure. also shaped by the system uh, that if, they, if you're running it for a year. The number of campaigns I've run that have been specifically born out of the frustrations and trauma of the campaign right before it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The DM is shaped. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't ever want to have this argument again. I'm solving yeah. for this argument. Right. Well, <laughs> great. Now I have a different argument. Right. <laughs> At least it's a new one. <laughs> the um, the sidebar on this page about long fights is an interesting way to deal with it. And basically it's you're fighting until a certain – it's basically uh, there. there's different ways to extend a fight such that they're, they're forced to use resources in a way that they wouldn't necessarily be forced to. And then it talks about how to how to make that – happen in a more hopefully organic kind of way, but I I don't know. Yeah. And I mean, this does have a certain amount of video game feel to it. Mm -hmm. Um, Like the battle their way to an ancient altar and complete a simple skill challenge during the encounter to claim a blessing from a deity. Well, sure. That sure. Like you're talking my language. It sounds like, a, a much less crushingly hard version of Dark Souls. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Just it it is very tonally unlike editions other than Fourth of D and D. And if you're trying to dodge that that sense of this doesn't feel like D and D to me, you have not dodged it. Right. Right. To be fair, this sidebar is trying to implement the other suggestions on these two pages. And give you an example of that. And I, I'm not sure it's successful at that. Because as you say, it sort of morphs it into feeling like a different kind of setup. Um, now, the you know the, the, the business with um, regaining expended encounter power, um, regaining second wind, regaining an action point, that kind of stuff, like, it's fine. That's, that, that doesn't intrude on the narrative to me. Mm-hmm. Um, because those things are kind of, we can gloss over those as being really a part of the narrative anyway. I'm not hanging story on the fact that this is an encounter power. You haven't really rested, so you shouldn't have it again. That's not, that's not something that matters in the text of who the characters are and what they perceive to me. Anyway, um, this remains a, a, a good solid section, um, even if to users of any other edition of D&D, it does require some reinterpretation. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with that assessment. Um, so, ready to talk about uh, creating movement? Yep. 
Okay, so, man, creating movement is one of the most beautiful things in fourth. Um, and it's something that uh, third did very poorly, very, very poorly. And uh, fifth does okay, but um, for reasons hasn't really exploited and hasn't grown into. Um, so, so they're talking about like, this is really about level design, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like, I used to work in video games, um, and so I got to see a little tiny pieces of how the people who designed levels, that is to say, dungeon levels, rooms, corridors, interior areas and exterior areas, how they thought about this stuff and what they were responding to. And friends, um, I, I love the work of the, the incredible cartographers working in D&D these days. Mm-hmm. Um, they're solving for beautiful cartography, not for the problems of level design and movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I love what they're doing, but I would also love to see uh, maps that we're solving for flow and movement in this way. Um, so it, it talks about circular paths causing movement by um, having a, both two ways to get to something because it's a circle and like someone could be fighting in a retreat and still wind up back where they were kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, attractive terrain, terrain to avoid. That is to say the PCs wish to avoid it. It is dangerous. This is the hazard and uh, fantastic terrain kind of business that we talked about in the last DMG and friends are about to get a bunch more of that. It's great. Um, but movement is a huge part of the tactical puzzle of fourth. If you're not encouraging movement, then you're not incentivizing people to provoke opportunity attacks. And then the fighter is having as much fun as they could be having. So uh, I have thoughts about this, uh, this two page spread. And yeah, I don't. Me. I don't disagree with anything that you've said. I want more. Oh sure. Because I feel like they've left out a ton of stuff. They've left out sloping passages. They've left out ledges, uh, balconies, things to play with in the actual environment. I know that they are going to hit some of that with the terrain, but having having it in the introductory text as well, and saying how important it is to have as well is is really you know i i'm either it more than just the aspects of how are things going to move around in here is the design of the whole thing right like one of the reasons why the keep on the shadow fell is is has been called a boring dungeon is because it feels relatively linear when you're going through it there's not a lot of interesting design in the actual dungeon level, right? There's not any uh, flooded passageways or uh, uh, sloping areas that go under and let you find a secret passage to take you to a different room. And, you know, there's very little of that in that particular. And the reason I bring that up is because it's the first, you know, adventure published for fourth edition. And so, um, you know, there's there's um, 
look, old school D&D was really good at dungeon design. And not all dungeons are created equal. Not all dungeons are great. If there's not a lot of interest, if it's just go to this room, kill this creature, go to this room, kill this creature, go to this room, kill this creature, it's boring. Uh-huh. And so what this is trying to address, specifically in 4th edition, is even if you have a beautiful tactical map and lots of wonderfully painted minis and really cool things on the table, it can also still just be boring. Because right. if you don't have anything of interest and it's just their minis standing and hitting the thing in front of them, that's boring. Yep. And I want them to go farther than circular paths and attractive terrain and avoid avoiding terrain. Like they could, they could write two more pages on and still not be enough for me probably, but they could write two or three more pages on just the ethos of here are things to think about if you're designing your own dungeon. Yeah, man. Right. Examples of good examples of not as good. Yep. I mean, I, I agree with everything you're saying. That is, that is the kind of, learn from video game level design that I want to see happening. Right. Um, there's, uh, there's a whole psychology of needing to think about the player's limited information and what they'll see at any time and whether it will be portrayed to them as limited information or whether the, the DM is going to, you know, lay out a mat with stuff they can't see yet and all of this kind of stuff that in fairness, the cartographer doesn't know and managing really complex terrain is, is hard, right? Uh, sloping terrain, like it, it is definitely a good thing. It's also definitely more complicated than Absolutely. flat. I mean, that's the point. It's more complicated. Uh, and man, you can do so much good with someone with range attacks up on a, a ledge or something. Um, so they've got a strong firing position that you know is there for the the party's ranged or teleporting attackers to do something about that kind of thing um but yeah i absolutely agree with what you're saying um i'm not necessarily the person to write that supplement but there's also something they could say about vertical space right like vertical levels in a dungeon and how you get from one level to another. Even if it's only a three-level dungeon, you can have interesting ways to get from first to third level that isn't just going down the stairs to the second level and looking for the next set of downstairs. For sure. Well, and and you know, tall spaces in a single encounter, right? That level of verticality. Yeah, I mean, think about a beholder, right? There was a, a second edition series of adventures the there was the beholder the uh monster arcana book about beholders and then there were three adventures an adventure path if you will of three adventures that that had the main villains were beholders um i think by thomas reed now don't run out and buy them they're not that great <laughs> some of the good some of the interesting things that they did were their beholders they move in the vertical space so their layers yeah. utilized vertical space in an interesting way. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's the thing about that. And so vertical space needs to be dealt with. You know, one of the things I, that my, one of my critiques about the Dungeon of the Mad Mage, the fifth edition product was there's no side view or lateral view yeah. vertical map yeah. well, that shows how you get from one place to another. Now, granted it's under mountain. It's huge. There's 23 levels, whatever, whatever. Yeah. But 
you can do little pieces of it, right? Yep. I'm, I'm going to say like one quick tip. Uh, if you need a bunch of resources for how to get better at level design. Oh, I was going to do this. You go first and I'll follow. Please, please, please. please. No, no, go ahead. Uh, Cause uh, you're probably going to say the exact same thing I am. So go ahead. Okay. So, so I'm going to say first, play every Metroidvania you can get your hands on. <laughs> That's not what I was going to say. <laughs> right. So, so uh, I'm going to, I'm going to send you to video games and they're going to take you to school on, on some level design. So, so like you don't have to play the ones that are souls hard, uh, just find Metroidvanias and play them. Um, they're, they're incredibly good for you in just teaching you how to think about space and flow. It flattens it to 2d in the other uh, aspect, right? It, it's it's um, horizontal movement rather than uh, top-down movement that, that we usually see in D&D. But it gets you to think about space in a different way. And when we started recording this, it, it wasn't that long ago, but way back when, um, in the, the misty reaches of, I think it was late October, I would have told you that I was never going to get anywhere in playing dark souls and i'd given up on it okay um but then i finally beat hollow knight and then i started playing dark souls because hollow knight is a souls like and i'd actually beaten one to my infinite shock uh and so i'm I'm playing dark souls and just the level design is beyond brilliant it is especially especially strong for that vertical access thing you're talking about. It is just completely great. It, um, and then for another like souls, like Metroidvania that you need to play salt and sanctuary um, is, is created by a, I think a two person like design team, just incredibly small team. Um, but man, there's so much good stuff going on with uh, flow and uh and space and the visual languages they they teach uh to like help you feel things about places unbelievable such a master class in what you could be describing to people and how you could have people moving it through space and engaging with encounters just so good oh man now sam please so I was going to stay in the RPG, the tabletop RPG realm, and and not bring in. I wasn't going to necessarily talk about video games because I don't play a lot of video games anymore. So it's been a long time since I played video games. Don't start with um, Dark Souls. That's a tip. Don't start with Dark Souls. <laughs> I'm not going to start because they'll suck me in, and I'll, you'll never hear from me again. Um, because I'll love them so much, right? <laughs> and so uh, what I was going to say was, if you're interested in how to think about good dungeon level design, even if it's only two, you know, everybody thinks, Oh, well, good level. You have to have a mega dungeon. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, even if you have a three level dungeon with five rooms on each level, this still is important to think about. You're not just going in to have a hack and slash kill them. Right. You can still do great stuff with just five rooms and that's it. That's what I'm saying. Right. But, but so here's the thing. If you really are interested um, go to Justin Alexander's blog. It's the alexandrian.net. And he has a series on there called JKing the Dungeon. And that's named for Janelle Jaquays, 
who is a famous video game designer and RPG designer. She started the Dungeoneering magazine that was taken over by Judges Guild. She uh, is an artist as well, so she wrote a ton of She's written a ton of uh, TSR era second edition D and D supplements, and and also AD and D first edition supplements. Just famous. Um, also, uh, you know, one of one of the you know she worked at ColecoVision. I mean, it's like amazing person, right? Uh, oh yeah, oh, yeah. She she's worked everywhere, and she's incredible. Right, she's incredible, and she wrote the Caverns of Thracia, and she wrote Dark Tower. Um, which were two early first edition dungeons and settings, basically, that utilized really, really great dungeon and faction design. It's like it it's just it's second nature to her, and her design was just so good. And so what Justin Alexander did was he said, I'm gonna take the components, the the things about those dungeons that made them so good. I'm gonna drill it down and I'm going to discuss how to take dungeons that don't meet these criteria, like the Keep on the Shadowfell dungeon, and I'm going to apply these jQuay's methods, and I'm going to jQuay the dungeon, right? (laughs) I'm going to make it a better dungeon by using things like circular paths and flooded rooms or flooded hallways and hallways that slope and a vertical view and like all those things, all those things that you and I are talking about that make something more dynamic and more fantastic, which is really important in fourth edition D&D because it is so tactical and so cinematic and so reliant on the battle grid. Those things that are so important, they need to be applied to the dungeon. Even if it's a small dungeon, even if it's a big dungeon, even if it's only got five rooms or if it's got 50 rooms, it doesn't matter. It needs to have good dungeon design applied because you need to be able to set a pace and make it dynamic. Yep, that is absolutely correct. Yep, I agree with everything you're saying. Uh, all of those lessons uh, were either learned from Janelle's material or independently relearned through blood, sweat, and tears uh, by other parts of the video game industry. I don't want to guess how anyone learned anything, but they came to the same conclusions. Yep, exactly. Let me tell you, there could be some flooded hallways in Dark Souls. That is a thing. Um, it's also a big part of um, Batman Arkham Asylum by Rocksteady. Um, nice. <laughs> like, yeah, you're, you're describing like where level design is right now. Like, the the lessons haven't changed. It's still what's it's still what's cutting edge. So. In light of all that, this is a very uh, sophomore level. I don't want to say freshman level because it's not freshman level, but it's a sophomore level introduction to that. But then it's followed by a senior thesis that kicks (laughs) because the senior thesis that follows it is the terrain section with the terrain, the interesting terrain examples. It's it's sweet. It's once again, this gets put right into fifth edition with your fantastic terrain in a different, different format. They could have done so much more of this though. Uh, it kills me. Yeah. But I'm just saying, no, no, I agree. Like all that you need to finish bringing more of this content into five E is DMs to be casually conversant in what tier the characters are in at any moment. Mm-hmm. 
and fully willing to scale all the challenges by their tier. That's what happens a lot of this. Uh, now, in this, there are three tiers of play. Fourth edition, fourth edition acknowledges three tiers. There's 1st to 10th, 11th to 20th, 21st to 30th. Fifth edition talks about four tiers of play. That's 1st to 4th, 5th to 10th, 11th to 16th, 17 plus, right? And so so you can't like just map it directly. Don't, don't be thinking I'm talking about that. But as a scaling mechanism, that's how you can have terrain that does damage instead of, well, it does 1d6 uh, that murders a first-level wizard or it is casually ignored forever in a day by a high-level character. Not helpful. Well, so let me, let me just read you one that I like, and I, and I want to tell you why I like it. Yeah. Jade flame. The strange, vibrant green flame burns everything that comes near it, yet the nature of its magic is such that a creature it burns cannot be harmed by other sources of heat for a limited time. The effect. A creature that enters a square of jade flame, or that starts its turn adjacent to such a square, takes ongoing 5 radiant damage per tier, save ends. However, until the creature saves against the ongoing damage, it has resist fire equal to 10 per tier. And then, it, and then it gives you a usage note. It says, yeah. Jade Flame offers the character a choice. They can accept some constant radiant damage in return for protection against a potentially more dangerous threat. The characters might need to use the Jade Flame to protect themselves before they race across a lava chamber or face another sort of fire hazard. Like, yeah. awesome. That yeah. is awesome. Well, like... You know, Sam, that when I wrote my 4E mega thread of cool 4E stuff that had yet been born into 5E, I think I listed almost every item in here. Did Not you? Not a joke. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I know Jade Flame did, 100%. Um, pretty sure Murder's Monument was in there. Just a ton of these, like I want to see at 5E. And it's just a matter of like feeling confident that you've got the scaling and effect right. Because like here they do uh, uh, five per tier and ten per tier as as the scaling. Well, that's a little weird. Terrain that does fixed damage uh, like this in the first place isn't out of the question, but it's a little. Eh? Yeah, Th- these are definitely written in four E language, right? Yeah. Um. So they would require a little bit of converting, but the ideas are ideas solid. Are great. Yeah. Ideas are solid, and there's a lot of them. I mean, there's there's a little introductory paragraphs, and then there's you know here's some fantastic terrain, and there's 22 different awesome things like the jade flame I just read, and then and then we get to terrain powers. And which, the terrain powers. <laughs> oh my god, terrain powers are just such great action movie stuff. Like it it is just. Indiana Jones up in this piece. I love it. Oh, I love it. Like, um, if you just think about, um, so, so I read an article years ago about um, the shots you need to set up a move in an action movie. You know, here I'm going to show you the thing the guy's about to use. Here I, sh- I show you him noticing it. Here I show you beating the guy over the head of the over the head of the paint can or whatever it is. Right, <laughs> right. That's so good, and like the, the like the number one thing that makes it hard in D anD D, other than um, damage scaling, 
is that PCs don't get disarmed and need to grab for an improvised weapon very often. You know, if you solve that, then boy, are you somewhere in terms of getting the feel of um, a kung fu movie or like Bond fighting in Casino Royale or whatever. Just that messy, brutal, desperate kind of fighting. Um, and folks, if you haven't watched uh, the Raid Redemption, drop what you're doing. <laughs> Go watch Raid Redemption. Oh my God! One of the greatest action movies ever made. I will stand by that. So these these terrain powers, they are written. The, the reason they're called terrain powers is because in fourth edition, everything that a character can do or has the ability to interact with is basically referred to as a power. Yep. Okay. Now your your thoughts and feelings about whether that's the right word or not doesn't it's not even the, who cares, you know that right. it, it's not even the active edition anymore. It's fine. It's fine. We can have that argument another time. But uh, so basically, like this, for example, a single use terrain, a tapestry, a quick tug, and the tapestry hanging on the wall flutters to the ground trapping anybody next to it. Now that's the that's the flavor text, right? And then it gives you all of the sort of um the the 4e basic stat block of this. And it tells you uh, you know uh how you use it. It tells you how to make a make a check to make it happen, you know, what skill check you need or whatever. And it tells you what the effects are in 4e stat speak, right? But the idea at its heart is still a really great one. If you can translate this four E language into fifth edition, into something in your mind, or even just use it as, as, as idea fodder. I mean, look, these single use terrains, a boulder, a large boulder. Okay. A chandelier, a rope bridge, a ruined wall, a swinging rope or vine, a table of combustibles, a tapestry. Like we've all heard about the famous scene where the character jumped up on the table and swang from the chandelier and kicked some, you know, thug in the face or whatever. Like how do those kind of scenes happen? In fourth edition, they happen because the character can interact with it. And this puts specific rules on that particular activity. Now, this is where there's a difference between old school and modern, right? Because the old school players are going to tell you, you don't need stats for that. You just wing it and do it. And that's fine. I'm not saying that's not the way to play or that it's not the right way to play or whatever. I, I, I do that when I play old school. Yeah, we don't have this. But this is fourth edition. And in fourth edition, that's exactly what people were asking for is how do I make it so that I can fairly let my player have their pc do that when everything else about the rules is so codified Uh, i tell you like fifth edition could use better guidance on building stunts yeah yeah like right but fifth edition is part of that modern the modern set right it's not an old school as much as we like to say hey it takes a lot from second edition and it's like second edition and fourth edition combined and blah 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 as much as we can say that it's not an old school game it is a modern rpg and it's written with a modern mindset and it has a modern set of skills and a modern set of actions and a modern action economy just like fourth edition did Yep. And so in fourth edition, I, what I'm saying is this was necessary for some people in fourth edition because everything else is codified. Why wouldn't you codify this? And by the way, 
even if you don't specifically use these stats, just having this as an idea mill. Oh, it's so good for the DM to say, "Hey, it's telling me I need to add more terrain and more interesting things to my rooms, rather than just a square room where everybody's hitting each other with their weapons." Here's some ideas. There you go. Like no single page in this book lit our group on fire more than page sixty-three when we first got this book. Like, it isn't that we can't have these ideas on our own. It's that this, as a, as a, as a format and suggestion for how all this needs to work. Like, we had a group full of content creators who were very confident in making their own new stuff. Teaching us a good format and and way to think about it and scale it. Yeah, it's really really helpful actually. These act as examples for anybody who wants to do something relatively simple, but needs a way to codify it so that they can adjudicate it the same every time, because that's what the rules demand in fourth edition. So yeah, perfect. And boy, we're going to turn the page and get to another of my favorite things in this book. I, I say that a lot, but man, I told you, we, I told you we both love this book. Not a joke. Before we go there, though, I do want, I, I got to give the caveat. I got to say that. This is a f- specific four eism. This this pay these last few pages. The, the, yes, you could take the fantastic terrain, and you can probably port it over to five e, like they did for Tasha's Cauldron, and and you could probably do some good stuff with it. And then these terrain powers, the the idea is applicable to anything, but the actual stats. Oh yeah, it's like reading garbage if you don't know what you're looking at. Oh yeah, you you've got to. You got to speak for you to know what you're looking at. Yeah. So just like I said about the third edition DMG two, when we got to that trap section and it was just a bunch of plus two this. And if they try that, it's a minus two. And if they do this, they get this bonus. And if they, and I said, Oh God, my eyes are rolling back in my head and I don't care about this. Now I want them to get like, that's what this page is going to look like as much as we're sitting here fawning over it. That's what this is going to look like to a lot of people who've never played 4E and don't know how to read this thing. 100% true. So just as that caveat, like I, if I didn't know the system, like I didn't know third edition very much, I'd be saying the same thing about this page as I said about that section. And, you know, so now I'll let you fawn over the next section. Oh man. Okay. So (laughs) it's not the only time in this book we're going to, do this, but you remember page 42? Mm-hmm. We're updating page 42. It's and now when page we talked 65. about page 42, right? I said it's going to be updated, right? Yep. And it's not the yeah. only time it's going to happen in this book, because we're going to get the uh, the rehash of um, skill challenges, too. But this is a rehash of the scaling numbers, um, and then this sidebar that, like, it, it, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. Is how I feel about this. <laughs> the top ten traps to avoid. Top ten traps to avoid, um, and what they mean is, you know, trap placement and trap design to encourage fun rather than frustration. Well, and a few pages later, they tell you the top ten ways to make your traps more fun too. Excellent. So there's two excellent sidebars related to the excellent. same basic yep. topic. Yeah. Very very good, um, and then just pages and pages and pages of big murderous traps um like we get we get a whole new terminology for traps the the water filling chamber oh my god yeah well the far realm star trap like you 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 what mate (laughs) i know right and that is that thing is oh i mean i 
I this is going in D and D brief. This trap right here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> however many of your players get murdered by it, but also I'm not sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, it's good. Yeah. So in my caveat stands with this, these several pages too, though, if you don't understand how fourth edition worked and how it, how it could be, how you could take this. So let me put it this way to take the, this information and turn it into a fifth edition usable item. You have to understand fourth edition first. Well, so, so you have one thing going for you, which is that Xanathar's has at least done complex traps. Right. But my, my point is, though, this is the caveat. We're gushing about this book, but it has some of the same problems as the third edition DMGs had, in that if you don't play that system, and that system is not understandable to you on a sort of intrinsic level, these things aren't going to make sense to you either. It's, it, you might as well make up your own thing using just the fifth edition rules and Xanathar's guide at that point, rather than take these and try to translate them because they're not going to be meaningful to you. And so in that way, that makes these pages not useful to you if you don't know how to use this information. Uh, right. Like You can do the research to try to learn it, but it's going to be a, a serious um, uphill climb for you if, you if you didn't spend years doing it. But even if all you take away is the name of the trap and the like theme at the beginning, you're somewhere at least. Yeah. Um, like the, the stuff is, is really, really strong, but yeah, the, the, ten, the top 10 ways to make your traps more fun. Also great. Reveal a new section of the dungeon. Oh yeah. Now we're talking like, that's a, that's a big thing in dark souls. I, I, I I've become that guy. <laughs> who, who like, for so long I was like I'm not a Dark Souls player I just can't now I'm that guy it's I'd apologize but I'm having a really good time yeah yeah and so th- so this chapter ends with a uh, putting it all together um, example basically of how to use the things that they've just been spending pages and pages talking about so this is going to be another uh Another long shot joke for a fairly small audience, but in top 10 ways to make your traps more fun. Number eight, encounter the trap keeper. This is a Nero plot line. <laughs> um, so, so Nero is another Atlanta area, but well, it's all over the country, but mm-hmm. there is a chapter in Atlanta and there was a, a character uh, written for uh, Nero called Heron Roa. And th- the PCs, Many, 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 many years ago, got the pages to Heron Rose Journal, and it, like encountered Heron's traps all over the place, and they were the most diabolical traps that anyone could build. They were horrible and murderous, and you died to Heron again and again. And then finally, um, just a few years ago, they actually cast Heron and the rest of his crew. And it was just such a reward for the players, nice, who had been like engaged with that character from afar for all this time. That's awesome. <laughs> just it's a beautiful example of turning number eight there into a twenty-year story. That's cool. That's really now. Did they have to? Was he like the main villain they had to defeat, or no? It, it's complicated, but he's only kind of bad, to the best of my knowledge. Like I, I'm not actually part of that community. I just watch it from afar with great interest. 
but he's he's a really really sympathetic bad guy, and he's really funny. So no, you don't actually want to kill him at all. It's, it's fine. You just no, like you probably. I think they probably worked with him. I don't actually know that, but I, I expect. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Killing him would be pretty much a sin. Well, I was going to say that's that's also an example of the have the villain keep recurring and coming back, and then absolutely when they finally speak to the person, which actually this brings up a good point. That's also true of NPCs, not just villains. But if you have an NPC who the party keeps running into or having to interact with at some point, you know, whether the person's the villain or not doesn't matter. Like they, they can just be a recurring NPC and that, that makes the world more real. Yep. Absolutely. Um, anyway, the, just the, the top end traps here are such a beautiful repudiation of our traps cap out at CR 10. Yeah. We don't really have any more traps to offer you. <laughs> uh huh. Pain vault. Yeah. As a gamja bar sized for a human, the whole body. Let's do it. I love it. It's great. <laughs> or how about life eater haze? There's a little haze, hazy smoke. Suddenly you lose half of your hit points. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> Heckin' sweet. Um, and, and then we get into a section called Pulling It All Together. Um, that, that is the examples of everything that we've been covering so far with you know, designing interconnected rooms for circular flow. Um, here's a bunch of different types of creatures all in the same encounter. Um, here's tactics, uh, features of the area, crushing walls, room trap. A, a single use terrain. Just, just really great, really, really great. And that that ends chapter two. So we will see you next time, Brandis. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on tribality dot com, uh, where I write lots of articles. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. My personal blog is brandisstoddard.com, and my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. And you can find me on rpgmusings.com or at uh, DM Samuel on Twitter or on the Tome Show. And that rounds us out for this really extra long episode. We hope you've been enjoying this series. And wear your mask, wash your hands. I hope you had a good holiday. Please, please, please let 2021 be much better than 2020. Just where it's going to be a new game plus. <laughs>